Among the living, there is a phenomenal appreciation for the dead. That is, the Grateful Dead, and for their revised latter incarnation known as Dead and Company. From San Francisco to practically every region of the United States and beyond, the long, strange trip continues. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. On the 1st of August, 1942, as the fog cleared on the Golden Gate Bridge, Jerome John Garcia was born in San Francisco. 16 years later, he would hear Chuck Berry's recording of Johnny B. Good and be enraptured. After a short period in the army and at art school, Garcia would go on to establish a bluegrass jug band that would eventually evolve into the Grateful Dead, the most successful touring band of all time. Now, a quarter of a century after Garcia's death, his legacy continues with Dead and Company, featuring John Mayer and Bob Weir. Today we will hear from scholar Dr. Rebecca Adams, who has studied the cultural influence of the dead, and then later we'll hear from Dennis McNally, a good friend of Jerry Garcia's and part of the dead's inner circle, as he served also as their publicist and spokesperson. And so too we will hear from an assembly of true deadheads. How long have you been a fan of The Grateful Dead? My first shows were at Hampton. What are some of the cities you've seen them in? Las Vegas, New York, we've gone to Mexico, Deer Creek, Indiana, Boulder. What's the most amount of shows you've seen in one year? Around 25, 25 to 30. How did you afford it? Find a way. <laughs> okay. It's a very religious experience for, for me. And your name is please? My name's Heather. Oh, you're tattooed actually. I have a, I have a whole sleeve of Grateful Dead tattoos. I think the, day, the dead saved me. I mean, everything I owned. When Jerry Garcia died, I felt like that was part of my existence was gone. I don't I no longer have to do LSD. If you are an academic, if you're an intellectual, if you are just a pure great absolutely throffing at the mouth fan 
of the Grateful Dead, then you have to at some point have encountered the name Rebecca G. Adams. She is certainly, well, not throffing at the mouth, but she is an academic and she is a scholar. And she's dedicated much of her career and her life to following the Grateful Dead uh, through various innovations, including Dead and Company Now. She is the co-editor of an academic work with uh, Robert Sardillo. She is co-editor of a book entitled Deadhead Social Science. You ain't gonna learn what you don't want to know. Ain't that the truth? I am delighted to welcome her to Watching America. Dr. Adams, may I just call you Rebecca? Would that be okay? Uh, Of course. Okay, and please call me Alan, of course. And so the first thing I want to ask you is, how did you initially encounter the Grateful Dead as far back as 1970? What happened? Well, I was a freshman in college at uh, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, I know that area. And, uh, yeah. I was a freshman, and there was a band on campus called the Outer Space Blues Band. They were a couple of years older than I was. And one of my first weekends at Trinity, they played uh, in the student center. And that was the first time I heard the Grateful Dead's music performed live, because in addition to doing their own music, they covered the Grateful Dead. And uh, fast forward a couple of weeks later, uh, it was the day before my uh, 18th birthday, One of the members of the Outer Space Band said that they were going to hear the Grateful Dead in New York City, and did I want to go with them? So I did. And that was the September 20th, 1970 show at the Fillmore East, and I turned 18 at that show after midnight. Well, let's go with fairly recent history. 2015, we have an anniversary, 50th anniversary of the band playing in Soldier Field over a series of dates, July 3rd, 4th, and 5th. It is a pay-per-view. There's over $100 million involved, we are told, by the pay-per-view aspect to it. Incredible money-making opportunity for the band, and yet a gleeful, joyful time for all fans who can congregate in Chicago. Now, you actually scored some tickets. I, I heard and read that you said that it was part of the, if you will, the cosmos or the way it should be, that you didn't strive to get tickets or pull rank because of your academic credentials, but actually at the last minute you got tickets to go. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So when you were at the concert, and uh, it's decades later, did you think to yourself, this is it, this is truly the finale, or did you envision, as has occurred with Dead and Company, somebody like John Mayer's coming in and replacing Jerry? I didn't know exactly what configuration the next project would take, uh, and I guess I did think it was probably the last time all of the remaining members of the Dead would play together. I was quite confident that there would be more bands formed out of combinations and permutations of the members of the Dead. But but I, I did not feel like I was saying goodbye to the band. I felt like I was saying goodbye to crowds of 90,000 people. The interesting thing is that They're incredibly accessible in small venues if you have access to the area. One thing I should share with you, Rebecca, is I lived in San Francisco, but I also lived for two years in a town called Mill Valley, which if you know anything about certainly the Grateful Dead, you will know Mill Valley is significant, San Rafael is significant. This is Marin County area. And so um, I could go to a local shop and I would see Bob, uh, Bob Weir. I wouldn't bother him. I remember being at a gas station and seeing Jerry. Uh, He was 
pumping right next to me, as a matter of fact. And I thought, you know, and I've met many celebrities over the years. And I just thought, no, man, the guy just has a look on his face. He just wants to be left alone. <laughs> so I never said a word to him. But you can go, uh, even now, He, uh, if you go to Mill Valley, Bob will play, at least. Very, very small venues, um, like Sweetwater and, and what have you. Uh, there used to be a place called George's in San Rafael. Let's look at the sociological uh, aspect of this. What does the Grateful Dead say about America progressively from the 19, late 60s, mid-60s, up until the present day? Well, you know, Jerry was kind of famous for um, a quote, which I'll have to paraphrase, but he said, well, you can't hop on a freight anymore in America, but you can go and see the Grateful Dead. Uh, I think that what Jerry was trying to say there is that uh, following the Grateful Dead uh, on tour is sort of uh, an adventure, an American adventure, just like settling the frontier. Well, part of the vernacular in dead culture is to talk about getting on the bus. Can you explain to the audience what that means? I think the expression, uh, you're either on the bus or off the bus, goes back to the Merry Cranksters and the uh, ride they took on uh, the further bus across country. And really, it's a matter, I think, of you're either into a spirit of adventure as being at a Grateful Dead show, or you are not. One of the interesting things is to see the persons who attend. Um, I'm going to play a few, a few clips right now of uh, various sound bites that I picked up because I, I went to two shows back to back and spoke to people in the parking lot, which is, you know, a gathering of in itself. There's, there's people who are, are selling things in retail officially, some unofficially. And part of it is this kind of festive, like almost like moving village of, of persons who are extremely mobile and setting up tents to sell items from show to show to show. But I had some very interesting encounters with people, some families who are three generation, people who have named their children after various songs of, of the band and what have you. And uh, I'm gonna play a few of these right now, here we go. How did you discover The Grateful Dead or Dead and Company? I was a Sting fan and they were playing with Sting and uh... I just like the people and the music kind of grew on me after a while and it took me a while to understand it. You know, it's, it's jazz and Dixieland kind of influenced and it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around that. Uh, but once I did, I actually named my daughter uh, after a Grateful Dead song. And what, what's your daughter's name? Her name is Lilac Rain, which is in a, a song called Unbroken Chain. Okay, so now let me go to the daughter here. Okay, so you are literally a namesake of, of a dead tune. Tell me about your own experience growing up, learning about the dead. Well, uh, you know, both my parents are just, they raised me on the dead. That's what we listened to, and that's what I grew up listening to and still do today. So it was really nice kind of being re-emerged into that. And may I ask how old you are? I'm 20. I'll be 21 next year. Uh, when you were in grade school and you had such an unusual name. Growing up with an unusual name is just, I mean, I think it's fun. Not, not finding your name on keychains isn't as big of a deal as people make it seem. I'm really grateful that my parents named me after a Grateful Dead song. Is there a world outlook that you think that you've inherited uh, growing up in a, in a home that appreciated the dead so much? Yeah, I think it definitely affected, you know, I'm, I try always to kind of strive to be kind and that's definitely one of my mantras and I think that that definitely came from my parents raising me on this kind of music. How many concerts have you been to? Oh, geez. your first Grateful Dead was she was what nine months old, Mom? Ten and a half. Ten and a half months old. Okay, so I've got an entire family here. Yeah. Okay, so we've got to bring we've got to bring Mummy into it. 
All right, so here we have a great romance with mum and dad mm -hmm. and the offspring, or a dead family if there's <laughs> ever been one. This uh -huh. is it. Okay, <laughs> so tell me your experience um, discovering the Grateful Dead. Did it happen prior to your relationship with this fine gentleman or afterwards? Um, I heard about the Grateful Dead in college, and um, but I had never been to a show. And then after I met my husband is when I went to my first show. And if you could say what the Grateful Dead have brought to your family, uh, just a few words each of you. I'll start with you and then go to Daddy, okay? Would you mind telling me what, what the key words are? Um, it brought us closer together. And Daddy? Oh, I, it just helps me live in, um, in America. And Baby Makes Three and we'll give you the final word. I think the final word would be um, love. I think it created a love for music in me and I think it created a love and a bond between us. I'm Ryan. Ryan, I see that you've brought youngins with you to the concert. Uh, and so really it's a second generation in, in your family? Yes, my young ones have gone to a first dead show in Atlanta at six months old. Wow, so do they have they grown up with uh, just uh, uh, osmosis, constantly hearing uh, the dead at home? Yes, they have. We also lived in a hippie community for a long time in Tennessee and have followed the dead around as much as possible. How many shows do you reckon you've been to? Uh, probably around 50 or so. Me personally, the kids have probably been to about 30. May I interview them for a moment? Is that all right? If I ask them a question? What's your daughter's name? Scarlet Fire. May I use that name on the radio? Yes. Hi, Scarlet Fire. You've got such a wonderful name. Can you tell us if you enjoy going to the concerts? I really like to go to the concerts. You do? How old are you? I'm eight. And my dad says that I am named after a song, Scarlet Fire on the Mountain. Right, right. Fire, fire on the mountain. Do you ever sing that? Um, sometimes my dad does, but I'm not much of a singer, so I, I like to sing more of alone. And what's your favorite thing about going to a concert with your mummy? The music, pretty much. Can you imagine this going on to another generation, perhaps grandchildren one day? I can, I can. Rebecca, what do you make of this uh, sense of family and, if you will, expanded community that is so much part of this culture? Well, that is actually what initially attracted me to doing this research was it was very clear to me from the beginning that the fans didn't just go to the shows and go home and forget about each other, that they actually kept in touch with each other and identified with each other. And the, you know, the more recent phenomenon that was just discussed or, or illustrated in those little excerpts you played was that this idea of there being multiple generations in a family that participate in the community. Uh, when I first started doing the research, uh, deadheads called themselves a tribe. And I didn't like that because theoretically in anthropological literature, a tribe has generations. Well, now deadheads do have generations of people involved and are closer to what I would describe a tribe. Well, they seem to have made all the right moves uh, virtually with a few errors here and there, but basically in incredible smart moves tactically as far as building the band and its reputation and its community. Um, they only made 13 studio albums, as you are well aware. But when the album Skull and Roses came out, they had an insert in the, in the fold of the album saying, we want to know who you are, get in touch with us. This is long before the internet and what have you. And from that, then they had a mail roll 
uh, of contacts, which allowed this, if you will, cavalcade of people from all over the nation to know what, which dates are coming up and where they were going to be and to plan it out. What strikes me, Rebecca, about this band is that they were forerunners of so many things now that we, we take for granted. In a time when the issue was to tour to promote the album, they really weren't doing that because they weren't selling albums. One of the reasons, frankly, was they were allowing people to tape their shows, which was very often more interesting than what could be done in the studio. But now bands are doing the same thing. It used to be that you would tour to promote the album. Now you put out the album to promote the tour. And what's happened is the rest of the world has aligned itself musically and marketing and management strategies with the Grateful Dead. When, when they allowed people to tape their shows, they gave Deadheads a reason to keep in touch with each other between shows to trade tapes. So, right. in a sense, they promoted the social relationships among their fans, which is one of the ways that that community began to form. Uh, another decision very similar to that was uh, in the old days, you had to call a hotline to find out about when the next shows were going to be and for the very specific instructions uh, that you needed to follow to order the tickets. Some of the instructions remained the same, but it was always which post office box. And sometimes they switched up the instructions a little bit. And it was expensive to make long-distance phone calls, so people would form groups of friends to share the burden of calling the hotline. Um, I could go on and on about um, the decisions they made that encouraged the development of community. Well, please do. Okay. Well, um, you, you sort of touched upon one, what I consider the most important foundational factor, which is their music was improvisational. So that meant Deb had didn't just go to one show on a tour uh, because they were afraid they would miss the show. So they had to go to more than one or as many as they could. Uh, and that gave them an opportunity to encounter each other over and over again. When they got to the show, uh, Deadheads would recreate a map of their community. You know, often their shows were, um, were general admission, so both in the parking lot and inside the show, deadheads could make their way to their normal spot. And, and that meant that neighborhoods formed within the show environment, behind the soundboard, in, uh, at the rail, in the hall, behind the stage, wherever the person's particular favorite place to see the show was. If they went to that spot show after show, they saw the exact same people to form friendships with them. Deadheads valued uh, the experience of being in the show, and actually some deadheads thought of this experience as spiritual. Most deadheads thought of the experience as meaningful and giving them a sense of belonging, whether they called it spiritual or not. But because Deadheads knew that that was implicit goal of the show was to feel part of something uh, bigger than yourself. There were expectations that Deadheads be very kind to each other and share their resources and did whatever they could uh, to set the stage for the magic um, that 
would then happen with the help of of the music and the um, in dancing. They are were were and still are considered by many people to be basically a peace loving band. But they had some unusual uh, engagements. Uh, for instance, they did play Altamont Speedway, uh, which is featured in Gimme Shelter. Even there, their their performance isn't featured. You do see Bob Weir and others as the helicopters are coming in to take Mick Jagger and Keith Richards out after the the murder that took place and the killing there. And they were also at Woodstock, though they're not featured in in the Woodstock film. So they, they played different venues, some of them a bit shady. They did have some association with Hell's Angels. Um, there's a Hell's Angels documentary where you actually have Jerry Garcia and he's hoping to officiate at a, an organically joined Hell's Angel marriage of a sort. Um, how did they steer away from problems? I'm not sure that they actually did steer away from problems. I mean, Jerry, you know, Jerry, I said good and evil did a little dance together. He... You know, he really looked at things from two different perspectives simultaneously. Well, well I guess a friend and, of the devil was a friend of his. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but you know, um, uh, when, I, when I was young and first started going to their shows, at the Hells Angels were the guards. I mean, they were standing around monitoring the crowd and keeping it under control. So, you know, they were doing good. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so uh, I know that some of the members of the band's family were a little uncomfortable with Jerry's relationship uh, with the Hells Angels. You know, I don't think that they avoided trouble. I think they just um, addressed it as they encountered it. Well, with the innovation today of uh, of Dead & Company, uh, what is your take on that? Uh, I got a different feel. I mean, at these two concerts, when I spoke to people, I'd get some people say, yeah, it's just as good. Jerry's gone, man. Get over it. Jerry's no longer here. You know, that's it. And other people said, you know, well, no, it's not the same. Jerry's gone. John Mayer's okay, but, you know, he's not the same. What's your take on this circumstance? Uh, it's interesting to me that people are so focused on Dead and Company and, and evaluating it as Jerry versus John because a lot has happened in between Jerry and John. Uh, it just seems like another stage in the trip to me, another an, another part of the evolution. Um, I would not compare John Mayer to Jerry, but I I think he's awesome. Well, the crowd is different. Um, it does not feel like an old-fashioned Grateful Dead crowd when you're at a Dead & Company show. Um, but but that's probably largely because the majority of people who identify as deadheads now are in their 20s. Yes. And they are different than the people who were in their 20s in the, you know, late 60s and 70s. So, of course, the audience is going to feel different. It would appear to me, at least, that when I've seen Dead and Company, um, there's a lot of people drinking beer, people getting, you know, glasses of wine and what have you. I'd say the vast majority. Um, I'm I'm perhaps in the wrong part of the crowd. Uh, I mean, you've still got people spinning and, and what have you, like dervishers going around. But uh, I'm, I'm not aware of a lot of hallucinogens there anymore. Uh, on the scene, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not seeking it certainly, but um, am I incorrect in that, or or is that still abounding? I I think that um, first of all, there was a misunderstanding about how common psychedelic uh, use was in the late 
60s and early 70s, it really was not as widespread as people suggested it was in the media. And certainly um, because the Grateful Dead culture um, grew out of, you know, the acid test, uh, which were psychedelic celebrations before LSD was illegal, certainly LSD has been associated with the Grateful Dead for a long time. Uh, it's not a secret that that still happens at shows. I want to ask you a question regarding your professional background with gerontology. We have aging rock stars and we have aging fans. Uh, how does that change things? I mean, just going to the venue, uh, getting out of the car. I did see vehicles at these concerts. I saw big vans, for instance, that have uh, swing seats for people to get into uh, uh, position in in motorized wheelchairs. Uh, I saw people on walkers, literally. Uh, being sensitive mm-hmm. to this as a background, what do you see as, as the future for both the stars who are aging? Uh, you've got Mick Jagger now, speaking of field. He's not only a grandfather, he's a great-grandfather. But so are the fans. So how is this going to change concerts, venues, um, the, the, the arrival at these events, uh, seating capacity uh, things? What do you envision? Well, that change has already started. Um, Certainly now, uh, you know, when you buy VIP tickets, they usually come with certain amenities. A golf cart takes you down to the stage. So those, while those are called VIP tickets, in fact, what they are are tickets that make it easier for someone uh, with, you know, uh, who is physically challenged either because of the aging or or other issues uh, to enjoy the show and still participate. Bob Weir has fully, completely embraced his age. He uh, is more than a touch of gray. It's completely gray. Uh, and so there you have, you know, him on stage with a long beard. He looks like old father time. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. Do you think in general audiences find that a healthy thing? Uh, well, I certainly think it's healthy to embrace your age, whoever you are. Um, I I do think that performers in general learn to adapt to their aging. I don't think Bobby has actually had to do much of that adaptation yet. Well, Dr. Rebecca Adams, I have to tell you that I knew it was going to be a good day. I knew I was going to interview you, and further still, I pulled back the curtains, and I saw that the sky was yellow and that the sun was blue. So thank you very, very much for joining us and watching America. You've been a delight to speak to, and uh, I wish you many, many concert dates ahead with those you admire and love. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not say this lightly, but earnestly and sincerely, how grateful I am to have Dennis McNally as my next guest. He is the author of A Long Strange Trip. Well, you might know that from trucking as a a lyric, but in an expansive form in a biography of the entire band, the subtitle of which was The Inside Story of the Grateful Dead. And if anyone had the authority to claim that, certainly Dennis McNally has had that right. Most recently, in 2015, he has had published 
the unpublished, which is kind of an oxymoron in a sense, but Jerry on Jerry, the unpublished Jerry Garcia interviews, which comprise a series of interviews spread out over a given period of time, where Jerry was pretty much allowed to go in any direction he wanted to in, if you will, stream of consciousness and thought with Dennis. They were good friends. They were good buddies. And so I invite him to be a part of this audience of Watching America. Dennis, thank you so very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Um, I want to actually start by talking about you. Um, obviously, it can be said of you, all true, that you are an author, historian, and a music publicist. But you're much more than that. You're an extremely interesting person in your own right. And I was very curious about the origins of your beginnings. Now, you had a daddy who was in himself a multifaceted person. He had the option of being an L.A. detective uh, or ministry, and he actually chose to be a pastor, which meant that you in tow with your sister and family moved to Maine. What was it like growing up in Maine for you? I was literally the only person in my high school class um, who had not been there for all four years. And uh, there, uh, there and then, uh, that was... uh that was something of a handicap. What it made me do was uh, end up spending a lot of time alone in the public library, um, with, which was, you know, my refuge. And uh, while I was there, as a matter of fact, literally in uh, um, about February of 1967, which was my senior year, um, I was uh, reading uh, Life magazine. I, it was either Time or Life, and I honestly can't remember which. And seeing pictures of a strange young man wearing an Uncle Sam hat, uh, playing in front of many thousand people uh, in Golden Gate Park, uh, and I, it, I, I actually consciously remember that, and I, and I know that I found it interesting. Although it certainly didn't occur to me that, oh, by the way, I was looking at a prediction of the rest of my life. Well, uh, let's talk about the rest of your life. You eventually uh, uh, go on to continue your education, and then you just decide to write a biography on Jack Kerouac. Let's yeah. let's uh, go afield again to a young man called Mr. Garcia, Jerry. Mm-hmm. At the age of 16, he is under the tutelage of a seminal artist called Wally Hedrick at the mm-hmm. Art Institute. And uh, it is he... Wally Hedrick, who turns Jerry Garcia onto Kerouac and On the Road, the book itself. And that was truly a transformative moment for Jerry, was it not? Oh, it was fundamental. Uh, The reason that I became the biographer of the Grateful Dead uh, was that I had sent a copy of my Kerouac book to Jerry, uh, and he felt, you know, I mean, Kerouac was his role model, his mentor, his, his single greatest hero, as you say, he was 16. He was taking Saturday classes at the San Francisco Art Institute. Uh, and Wally Hedrick was very much a part of the beat painting scene in San Francisco. The, uh, other students, in fact, asked, you know, what is this beat thing? You know, and Wally said, you guys are beat. Go. And he told Jerry uh, to go down to City Lights and get this book on the road, which was you know, been contemporary bestseller material. Uh, Jerry did so. It, what he what he said was that it, it it identified for him his set of ethics that that life uh, that the the life of the spirit and of art um, and of love was a, a great deal more important than getting and spending. Oddly enough, he ended up you know getting and spending quite a lot, uh, which as far as far as he was concerned, as long as he spent more than he than he got. Um, made it all okay, but at any rate, Kerouac was his his role model, um, and he followed that throughout. And you know, we had that bond, and eventually he um, he said, "Why don't you do us?" Which 
is to say, why don't you write a, a book about the Grateful Dead, which is precisely what I had been wanting to do since I'd finished the book about, the, about Kerouac. Well, let's back up a bit. Um, when Jerry was young, I mean, besides going to City Lights, did he hang out, hang out in North Beach, the section of San Francisco, which was largely beatnikish and, you know, the uh, Hungry Eye and places like that? Yeah, there's there's something I don't know what it is about the, the Italians of, of Greenwich Village and North Beach, uh, but they uh, are considerably more uh, hospitable to social outcasts, shall we say, uh, than other neighborhoods. And uh, Jerry was very much a part of the, the North Beach scene, and he would go into the coffee houses wherever you know, uh, wherever there was that uh, that at his age he could get in, uh, and he. Um, he, it, it was his ambiance. And of course, City Lights is the, the shrine and temple of literacy, uh, in San Francisco then and now. And, uh, he, he spent time in all of those places and it was, it was very much a part of, of his growing up. Let me ask you about your first encounter with, with Jerry Garcia. Um, one is always aware of people who have fame. I've, I've, I've had the opportunity, like yourself, to be around many different celebrities. And there's this awkward moment at first when you're introduced and you see them in 3D and you consciously think, well, I don't want to make a big deal of talking to them. And yet your heart may be palpitating, particularly if you admire the person, as evidently you did admire Jerry uh, to begin with. At what point did you sense that you had arrived at a point with Jerry of acceptance, that you were part of, not the inner sanctum, but certainly getting closer to that uh, beyond the periphery? Well, really, you know, it was, uh, quite frankly, it was not the first encounter. It was uh, one time uh, early on in my research for the, for the Grateful Dead book, I was sitting in the Grateful Dead office with a couple of other people, and he poked his head in the door before he got to the other two, looked at me and said, oh, hi, Dennis. And then later on we were talking, and I was saying what you just said, really, which was that uh, that first time I, did, I, I had interviewed him well before all this, in 1973, um, I was in the company of Al Aronowitz, who was uh, then a, uh, a the pop music critic for the uh, New York Post, mm. when it was a respectable newspaper. Al uh, was a good friend of Jerry's, and after a, uh, a performance at the uh, Capitol Theater in Passaic, we, we went to Jerry's room, and I interviewed him on the subject of Neil Cassidy, because Al had written uh, a very important and, 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 and substantial, tw- I think it was 12-part series on the beats. Um, Dennis, for an uninitiated audience, and we're constantly getting new members and younger people listening, could you explain who Cassidy was to to a broader audience who may not be aware? In 1957, uh, Jack published extraordinarily because it was a real a book that really broke most of the conventions of of writing writing style at the very least uh, of the era. Uh, a book called On the Road. And it was about a wild man, I guess you could say briefly, um, named Dean Moriarty, who was, in fact, Neil Cassidy. And uh, unfortunately, many people uh, have a tendency to, to think that, uh, that Jack was Dean Moriarty and, and the wild man. And in fact, the name he gave himself was Sal Paradise. And he was the guy sitting in the shotgun seat. Neil was the, the madman behind the wheel. He was... Jerry said that one one way that you could understand that Neil was was I mean many people sort of dismissed him as a madman because he 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 certainly wasn't conventional um, and he did many things that were among other things uh, you know very painful for the for the family and because he also had a wife and children and so forth. Would you describe uh, him as a mercurial personality? 
not precisely mercurial as as occupying uh, more layers of consciousness than the average person even knows exists. Got you. He could, uh, one person des- uh, described him as, as being able to carry on five conversations simultaneously, like literally standing in a, in a circle of people and have been talking with each one of the people there about a completely different subject, whatever subject it was, uh, and being able to, to modulate all of that. And if you transcribed it, and if you knew what you were doing, and if you understand and understood his references, you'd actually see that it was all making a great deal of sense, um, but very few people could ever follow it. I mean, it, it was mm. just, it seemed gibberish, but it was not. So let's go back to, I presume, Front Street, where the studio used to be in San, Ra- San Rafael, uh, mm-hmm. and, and you're with Jerry, and, and he bobs his head in there. Okay, uh, he eventually turns to you, and they have they have problems not having a publicist, and Jerry, in uh, in 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 certainly high regard for you, says, "Well, let's have Dennis take care of the press," and you become suddenly a publicist. Did did that just hit you broadside, or did you anticipate anything like that happening? Well, I had sort of hoped for it in not literally being publicist, but so, so much as uh, to work on the inside would be the way I was, you know, working on the book as a, as a biographer. But the inside view that is referenced in the, in the subtitle uh, was uh, something that I sort of wanted to do. And what happened was that there was a, a meeting of all employees, which was called a company, uh, a, a band meeting. In the Grateful Dead, a band meeting meant all employees, everyone with a paycheck. And uh, one of the rules was that at the end of the meeting, um, anyone had the right to file, you know, say a complaint, make a suggestion, whatever. And the receptionist said, what are we going to do about the media? Nobody's responding to them. And they call back and they're annoyed with me. And I'm annoyed with them. Uh, and Jerry said, I get McNally to do it. He knows that stuff because, well, A, it's not quite as casual as it might sound. I'd been around at that point for three years, and I'd sort of, in effect, it was like pledging a fraternity, I, I, although it also had lots of women, the women in the office. Um, <laughs> and in fact, uh, we used to jokingly refer to that as a fraternity um, in, in, when I was in college, uh, <laughs> a, a co-ed fraternity or co-ed group. Uh, but the point being that, that um, for three years I had been you know, pestering, <laughs> pestering everyone in the organization, and no one had gotten too seriously offended by me, uh, so that they they knew who I was, um, and I had done a a book tour for the Kerouac book, so I had some idea of what a publicist did. Let me and, ask you: when, when you got the job, mm-hmm. uh, were you tempted to contact people like the Beatles and the Beach Boys publicist Derek Taylor or John Lennon's Elliot Mintz and say, "How do you do this?" I mean, or did you just feel your way through it? No, I, I I did feel my way through it, although I will confess that for about a week, I wanted to refer to myself as press officer, a la Derek Taylor, uh, in homage. Yes. Uh, and then I went, Dennis, don't be silly. You're an American. You're a publicist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, what was the first year like? Did it, get, did it get easier and did you get more comfortable doing it? The hard part was, was simply that it was like standing under... Uh, you know, a giant waterfall instead of just a normal shower. Um, there was an enormous, uh, particularly when I started returning all the phone calls, which the pre- my predecessor hadn't, um, um, I, I, I suddenly, you know, got even more because suddenly there, there was a, you know, a practical, um, 
and reasonably responsible person um, you know, at, at, at the helm, or that minor uh, helm. Uh, and uh, what I realized then, quickly, was that, that the job of a publicist, outside of you know, take intake, uh, which I was you know, capable of answering a telephone, um, was simply to find members of the media uh, that had some fondness for your client, in this case, the Grateful Dead, and say, call them up in, in that era, in the 80s, pre-internet, pre, uh, and say, say something nice about my guys. And, you know, to be honest, I've been doing this now for close to 40 years, and nothing has changed. The, the, the means have changed. Now I send out email blasts and so forth and so on. I'm old enough now that I can refuse to deal with social media on the grounds that that's for the young. Uh, but it's not rocket science. It does involve ability to write, which I had when I got there, and it involves discretion and caring and choosing your words carefully. Uh, but I don't ever remember feeling, oh, God, I can't do this job. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and I am utterly delighted, as I said at the outset, to have Dennis McNally as my special guest. He is an insider from The Grateful Dead uh, and, moreover, the author most recently and editor of Jerry on Jerry, the unpublished Jerry Garcia interviews. And also the forward for the book, I might add, is by Trixie Garcia, whom I presume most of us are aware is actually Jerry's daughter. So if he has an endorsement from the daughter, that ain't bad. Um, (laughs) One of the things I wanted to ask you in continuance uh, as far as understanding the band, you have been described as saying elsewhere regarding the Grateful Dead, and I quote, they were a very functioning anarchy. Uh, where most everybody got to do what they wanted to do. For a publicist, that might be extremely difficult uh, at times. Uh, you're told to say one thing, perhaps, and you have marching orders, and you say, you got to say this, got to say this. And then off the cuff, somebody says something. How do you put fires out? Well, you know, I didn't really have marching orders. Oh, good. Um, I, the, the person I worked with most closely was Jerry, because he was the one that most of the media wanted to talk with. Um, there were at least uh, there were a couple of band members who absolutely never talked with the media, and you know, fine. I, 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 we were all friendly, but uh, you know, they, I understood that they weren't interested. Uh, uh, Bob Weir would talk occasionally if I talked him into it, and then, uh, particularly as, as time went on, Mickey Hart would uh, very much use me a lot because he kept coming up with these remarkable and interesting projects. Uh, that weren't necessarily as popular as the Grateful Dead, but you know, certainly deserving of attention. So I helped him with Planet Drum, the the record, and then the book, and then other books, and so forth and so on. So, no, um, it, it, Jerry was the perfect boss. Uh, he assumed uh, that I was competent. Mm-hmm. He as if I asked him to do something, uh, he always said yes. Uh, but he never would. Unlike other bands, and uh, you know, why aren't we in the paper here? They didn't care. They they lived. Uh, you know, uh, there's a line in the book about uh, the Grateful Dead had had left the music business and gone into the Grateful Dead business, by which I meant they were they were rather in their own world. When Jerry hired me, he said, "Look, the first rule around here is we don't suck up to the press." And I went, "Right, fine, okay, we don't suck up," um, and. Then he sort of went, well, that's about it. 
<laughs> I mean, that was my job yeah. training. The next thing he did was offer me a joint. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Um, to seal the deal. In the 1980s, the planets aligned and the grandest wish perhaps of many, many, many Dylan and Grateful Dead fans uh, was fulfilled in their, in their touring together. What was that like? To a large extent, bluntly, um, it was fairly disappointing. And that was uh, that in 19, this was in the summer of 1987. Jared had a diabetic coma in 1986. He recovered. He was, you'll pardon the expression, entirely grateful to be alive. Sure. Uh, he was sober. He was energetic and enthusiastic. You know, had the highest, highest possible regard for Dylan. Um, and as Dylan will tell you quite bluntly in Chronicles, in his memoir, uh, Dylan was not in good shape. He was simply not in sync with the world at that moment. Yeah. And um, I think probably drinking quite a lot, whatever. It, it didn't matter what it was, but he was clearly not at the top of his game. And as a result, the you know the band was just oh so eager to back him up and to just rip it up and he was you know only so 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 that it never it never reached the heights that it should have it it, it felt it felt good um there was one night in particular that i was you know really impressed they did uh, a, 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 what i think is one of his really great songs and sort of lesser known masterpieces called the chimes of freedom flashing mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately when I went back and listened to it years, many years later, I realized that his voice was already really pretty creaky. Dylan is notorious for being so aloof and seemingly indifferent. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost like Miles Davis, uh, where he would turn his back practically on the audience. Was he aloof with the other members of the, of the Dead, or was he affable and approachable and, and engaged? Uh, by and large, my impression was, the, was that he was aloof, except for Jerry. Uh, he w- when he was on stage, there was a, each band member had a little space on stage. There was there were curtains and whatnot uh, separating the areas, and he pretty much spent his time in Jerry's Jerry's corner. Uh, and and uh, he, you know, certainly he didn't have much. Uh, he had nothing to say to me, you know, nor was I offended. Uh, but. Uh, uh, he, he was, one of my, um, vivid memories of him was when he came for rehearsals, uh, to Front Street, which was this, um, uh, raffish down at heels neighborhood of San Rafael, mm-hmm. I know uh, where it well. the studio was. Right. Um, and it was, uh, at that time, um, uh, the um, the uh, home of prostitution in in um, in San Rafael. Street, women walked the street, and uh, well, that's not why I know it well. I must hasten to add. <laughs> I made no you know no. Yeah, my wife's listening. And uh, what happened was that um, the, the Grateful Dead did not you know rehearse hour after hour after hour. They would take frequent breaks, breaks especially because at that moment uh, their friend Bill Walton was uh, on the, a member of the Boston Celtics that was playing in the NBA Finals. And the drummers really loved watching basketball. So they take breaks and go out and sneak looks at the, at the game. Dylan, having no interest at all in sports, um, he would go, and, and I remember seeing him go out and sit in the parking lot, which was right in front of the uh, uh, front street. Um, and he was sitting on the hood of a car, just sort of staring off into space. And three uh, women... Um, 
uh, were standing across the street, sort of elbowing each other, going, look, look, look who it is, look who it is. And um, I just, I thought that sort of epitomized um, the strangeness of it all, let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah, it's cinematic. I mean, one envisions even an album cover uh, depicting something like that, the photojournalistic uh, kind well, of... Well, leaving aside Dylan, there was an album cover, uh, and it wasn't photojournalistic, it was a cartoon, uh, and that is, it's the, the cover of Shakedown Street, right. about the Grateful Dead album, Absolutely. and that is exactly what that's about. It's about Front Street and a lot of very strange things happening. 1995, and... Um, Tragically, regretfully, uh, Jerry Garcia dies. Thank you for calling the official Grateful Dead West Coast tour information and mail order hotline. This is a new message as of August 9th. We're very sorry to confirm the death of our brother and friend, Jerry Garcia. We'll have more information soon. Thank you. August 9th, 1995. This is ABC News Nightline. Reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. Jerry Garcia's death today produced one of those extraordinary reactions that demands attention. It was limited neither by generation nor gender, race or class. Famous people die all the time, but today millions of people seem to feel that they have lost a friend, a touchstone to something important in their own lives. Here in Washington, they are paying tribute to Jerry's memory on the mall. And there they are in New York Central Park, doing the same. And there, too, on the other side of the country, in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. That surely, for a publicist, must be a crisis moment if there ever is one. I remember uh, living in San Francisco at that time. I remember Bob Weir coming out. I remember the statement, um, Jerry's body just failed him. Um, did you come up with that line or did you prompt them what to say or did you just let them let loose and say whatever came to mind? I, I'm restraining myself from laughing because the idea of telling any member of the Grateful Dead what to say is, is uh, <clears throat> a giant waste of time. Okay. Um, no. <laughs> um, what happened, I made the, I made the official announcement um, because the, uh, the uh, coroner uh, of, um, of Marin County uh, was the idea of speaking to the press terrified him, and he was more than happy to, when I said, "Well, you know, if you want me to make the announcement, I'll make the announcement." And he said, "Oh, you know, oh, please." Um, and you know, uh, Jerry had uh, had been in fact fighting his his um, his addictions and his demons, and you know, died of a heart attack. Um, he, as I, as I've said many times, you know, he died by cheeseburger, cheeseburgers and milkshakes. Well, you helped them transition through one of the most delicate periods, obviously, of, of, of the band's development. Uh, certainly post-Jerry um, was extremely difficult. The whole idea of what was going to be the various inversions of the band. Eventually, you wind up uh, working with Bob Weir with Rat Dog. What was that mm -hmm. like? Uh, because you have a curtailed, you know, reduced band, uh, less you know, tractor trailers being necessary to carry equipment and what have you. Just Scaled one. down, but what was that like for you? Was it incredibly different, or, or did you wake up saying, this is not the way it used to be, or did you actually perhaps find some welcoming aspects? I, it, was, it was quite wonderful. Um, what happened with Rat Dog? Uh, yes, it was certainly scaled down. 
we traveled by bus, not uh, not a charter jet. There was a camaraderie uh, in Rat Dog. I spent four years on that bus and um, and enjoyed it thoroughly. Part of Bob Weir's grieving after Jerry died was that he didn't want to play Grateful Dead music for a number of years, um, and he 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 has a certain weakness for for being a Las Vegas lounge lizard. I think there's just down deep. <laughs> he, he 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 wanted to play uh, Bobby. He he did a Bobby Darren song. He did My Funny Valentine. He, yeah, yeah, you know all that yeah. sort of thing at one time or another. Yes. Uh, Bruce Hornsby called Grateful Dead songs hymns, and I, I and that is to say that they are that are intrinsic. They are yes. the new Ameri- the new version of the Great American Songbook. Yes. Uh, and I watch, and it's a la- it, it, uh, it it's a language. David Gans the the. A radio uh, host, um, my friend, um, um, called. You know, says that you know, Grateful Dead music is a language, and you can yes. throw any accent on it you want. So that there's heavy metal Grateful Dead, and there's Irish Celtic me- me- Grateful Dead, and <laughs> Hawaiian flat key Grateful Dead, and yes. you name it. Yeah. Um, but the fact is that there's a million people, and there are more Deadheads in, than there were in 1995. Well, Dennis McNally, I am amply rewarded just by speaking with you, sir, and I want to thank you so very, very much for your generosity of time, your intellect, your candor, and your charm. Absolutely wonderful interview. Thank you so very much, Dennis McNally, the author and editor, amongst other things, of Jerry on Jerry, the unpublished Jerry Garcia interviews. Thank you so much and blessings to you. You're very welcome and the same to you. Take care. Fare thee well. Take care. Fare thee well. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Our producer is Paul Bebo. Senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm the series host and creator and editor of this edition, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.